Mic check, one, two, one, two, what's going on? Welcome into another episode of the KZ Community Beat. I'm your host, Ross Martinez, and back again, a good friend of the pod, Becky Rossum, the CEO of PCAP, Peoria Community Against Violence. We brought you back today because breaking news yesterday. We talked about uh, how PCAP may be closing its doors. Yes. The possibility of it. Um, potentially November 30th, if we don't get community support and private funding, we had our federal funding um, discontinued nationwide. Just VOCA dollars are backing off of gun violence. It's even affecting some other local nonprofits who get VOCA funding for other victims. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some proposals on the table um, that one of them was tabled to third quarter, but that's kind of the 11th hour before we would have to close doors, and it does take a little bit of time to dissolve an organization. Um, and then we applied for the city's anti-violence funding, and we weren't a recipient. So that's when I was like, okay, we need to do something. Um, I'll be honest, I made the recommendation to the board that we were probably going to have to dissolve. Mm. But they voted to, let's do a media blitz. We don't do a whole lot of media, and part of it is just the capacity. We have three people doing the amount of work for at least ten. Yeah, you guys are... Uh impactful organization but when it comes to actually the members working i remember last time you told me it's kind of slim pickings yeah it's just um i mean doing the administrative so as the ceo i also do all the finances the hr um social media the grant writing and then i carry a caseload of over 100 Mm. and both of my staff have um i have two amazing people kara is our director of case management and her caseload's higher than mine, and the same thing with Ken Godbolt. He's our director of community outreach. Like I know Ken. Ken, that's a, that's a worker right there. I know Ken well. You actually sent him my way for an episode. Yeah. So amazing people. But <laughs> before we. Should, sorry, I would say caseload shouldn't be more than twelve to fifteen people on them. Oh wow. Just because of the amount of work you do, and our work is very comprehensive. So um, each family needs an average of seven different services. <laughs> you put it that way, right? So you have three that are boots on the ground, right? Yeah. And each family needs seven different services. So you have three people to provide that for how many different families each? Well, in the last year, we've um, served 526 individuals <sighs> that were affected directly by gun violence. They were either victims, um, immediate family members, or sometimes they're perpetrators because they have been victims. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the grits of everything going on, for those that still may not know what Peoria Community Against Violence, PCAV is, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization? Yeah, so PCAV actually started in 2014 as part of the Don't Shoot initiative. Mm-hmm. And when the Don't Shoot part ended, um, they turned it over to the community. It was a volunteer organization that responded to homicides. We still have that component. We are now nationally certified. It's comprised of our three staff members, um, a few of our board members, and then volunteers in the community who went through NOVA training. And we also do extensive case management. So we work closely with the police department. They um, send us the victims of gun violence. We have had 20 shots since July 1st. Yeah, there's been a lot. So a lot of cases, um, kind of like drinking from a fire hose. I can't say enough about the police department. I mean, they are doing a lot as well. I don't even know how they solve cases when they just keep coming one after another, but they really are great partners. They care about the community. Last Friday night, I had a detective call me about putting um, putting a community member in a hotel because they were worried about her specific safety. So 
worked on that from 9 or 10 p.m. to about 4 a.m. I feel like the violence epidemic that we initially talked about the first time you came around has just magnified within the year that I've been here. Like, I hear it even more. Like, it feels like every week is something big. Like, two weeks ago, it was a nine shots right by Neon Bison. There was a couple shots last night. You told me that you had a response to the case a week ago? It was about a month ago. We had um, some kids that we're working with who were in a car on Grandview Drive. Two got shot that night, and I think four in a car on Knoxville. It's a lot. It, it is, and it actually kind of ties back to our 2021 numbers. We had 143 people shot in a year. And when we compare it um, from that year to this year, we're both, we were sitting at 76, but I think we've since had one more shot. Last year at this time, there were 56 community members who had been shot. So it is up. Do you have any insight for someone that is boots on the ground that has their hands on the pulse of the community? Why has it become such a pandemic of like violence there's a lot going on maybe that might be overselling it i don't know um because you know there's only so much i can do from my position you're in the city you're witnessing these families you're having kids stay at your home that need not rescuing but a safe place so you're in the community well nationwide um gun violence is up but Peoria's numbers when I was looking at the crime stats said our violent crime rate is 154% higher than the national average, which is also going up. Um, there are a lot of contributing factors. You know, the majority of our cases are, um, are in poverty, so a lot of those social determinants, and they're really just kind of confined to certain areas. You know, that 61605, 61603, but as you can see, it's getting bigger, and it's, you know, those boundaries are expanding where we're having it in other parts of the city. It just seems to be every week is just something. And I feel like your caseloads are just magnifying as we go. So the importance of PCAF for me as just a regular citizen of Peoria, Illinois, it feels like PCAF has an importance to the community. And well, it definitely does. Um, and like I was saying, being so short on staff, we really need to be investing in getting more staff so that we have more case managers. I mean, we have some really good success stories, mm -hmm. but right now, since the cases are coming so quickly, we're just triaging, like, who needs the most help, um, who needs the most services, and we do like to walk people down a journey where, you know, we've had some, like the mom who was at the press conference with us yesterday, I met her in May of 2021 when her son, Candon, was murdered, and we've kind of walked along with her. She ended up losing her business and, you know, her job and some other things, but now she's back working, and rebuilding she's just an amazing lady a lot of strength um but unfortunately we're, we're not able to keep you know going down people's journey because it's just one um gunshot victim after another mm -hmm. we're working with so then my next question is are you ready to take the gloves off and have this conversation because no. <laughs> <laughs> there is something that i had to pull the quote up here to make sure i read it perfectly but when you were talking about the grants and everything yesterday at the press conference, you said it was a perfect storm of external factors that led us to where we are today. Uh, the federal funding that supports PCAV, anti-gun initiatives, would this continue nationwide on December 1st, which you were talking off mic. And even though gun violence is at all-time high, which we were just talking about, local vendors are pulling back their support because of the impending recession. Yeah. So all this is happening. Can you take us through the process of you finding out PCAF maybe closes doors, but at the same time, it's necessary to have PCAF in the community. Absolutely. So um, I think it's a black that I just came out about this because the federal funding we found out, um, I don't know, maybe maybe 
four to six weeks ago, but we still had some irons in the fire, right? I had mm -hmm. a proposal sitting on someone's desk who asked me to write it um, for 320000 which could easily pivot to cover what we do. Um, it did get tabled, not because of the way the proposal was written, just because they're looking at a new direction, but they did table it to third quarter of this year, but it takes a while to dissolve an organization. So we can't count on something that's going to happen in October. Um, we were in the application process for another large grant. We got through the first two phases, didn't make it to the third phase, um, which is understandable. And, you know, there's a lot of great organizations in town, and different grants do different things. As we were just talking about um, when I was talking to Kelly yesterday, the mom, she said, Becky, how are things like PCAV? potentially going to be out of business, but we're looking at a $2.8 million splash pad over here. I did see that story, and that was the position of it, location of it was very intriguing to me. To me as well. Um, I mean, I did explain to her, we talked about, you know, it's for fine arts, right? So that's not PCAV. So there are those grants that are um, designated for certain areas, mm -hmm. but that particular area is one of one of the areas that has the highest homicide rate, So, or at least since I've been in this position. How long have you been in position now? Since March of 2021. It's a consistently long amount of time for it to maintain that stigma, whether they're trying. I mean, it goes back and forth. I mean, maybe not just homicide rates, but shootings. I have one of the 16-year-old kids that I work with, he was shot on that street. So. Is it there? Maybe I don't want to speak for them or try to. This is why they're doing it, but. I don't know. It, coming from Chicago and seeing that happen where you put it on the dangerous block and maybe it'll deter, if anything, it goes up even more. Yes. Like, I've seen. I mean, that can absolutely happen, but, you know, just kind of the optics of it. Our city is, you know, the crime rate is through the roof. You know, mm -hmm. record levels of violent crime. People are getting, you know, cars stolen and all of these different things are happening in our community. And it's just kind of like the optics of when I'm talking to the families we serve. They feel like they're kind of being, you know, disinvestment, which we've seen a lot in 61605 and 61603. Um, but just coming out with things like things like that don't always aren't always received well mm -hmm. across the community, especially when the community is worried about A, B, and C, right? Yeah, it's like you want answers for A, B, C, but we're telling you by X, Y, Z. Like, oh, that's not our focus right now. So as we're talking about funding in the conversation that you had yesterday, you said that 89000 was provided for families of victims of gun violence by providing hotels, transportation, food, clothing, relocation services. Is this a frequent you guys do for every family that they some of the services that they have? It's not every family. So we have moved um, six families out of state and a handful more out of the area just for their own safety. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, the police have been great partners, but we had a young man who was shot. When he was um, relocated, then they fired 70 rounds into his mom's house. 70 rounds? They were not going to stop, um, so we ended up moving that family out of state. So we do this, I mean, enough times, but sometimes the money is used for rent when parents, like, lose their kids, mm. or maybe someone loses their significant other, and they're not working, then we'll pay rent for one month or up to $1,000. Um, you know, to, to kind of give them that bridge. Because most of the families who are getting affected by violence, they don't have money just sitting around. Mm -hmm. We've had a help with a handful of car repairs that got shot up. Uh, we have a mom who is in her early 20s, well, mid-20s. She's on bed rest currently with her third child. She's got sickle cell. 
and oh. she can't work. She had a great job before, but she can't work right now. She has no real support system. Um, she has a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. And when we were talking about we pay the deductible to get a car fixed, she didn't have an extra $500 laying around, right? So talking to her and working with her, we find out a month before that her house was shot. She still has the bullet holes in her house that her kids can see, right? And I talked to um, our contact at the police department, just make sure before I send, um, we started using volunteers on smaller capacity because mm. we can't get to everyone, but we always want to make sure it's safe. Like, we'll go in when it's kind of questionable, um, and then they can do some of that later work when I talked about walking down the journey with our families. But um, the lieutenant told me, he said she was an unintentional victim both times. So people living in certain areas, you know, they, the areas keep getting ravaged by gun violence. And that causes a lot of trauma, especially, I mean, for everyone, but especially for children. You know, I remember we had this conversation last time where it's that this is a sad reality for a lot of our community members. But then there's a portion of our community members that have no knowledge of this daily action. I had just met this guy at the dog park. His name was Sid. He said that uh, somebody shot up the lady's house next to him. And he was literally, uh, I think, District 150, I think it was, he said he was living. And he's just like, yeah, this happens randomly here. And then there's a lady two tables down. She's like, really? I never hear anything. And she lives maybe like six blocks away. And it's it just amazes me the duality of the community that we live in, that there's some people that live in this, for lack of better terminology, a bubble yeah. that are not privy to the crime, even though they see it on the news. But they don't really understand the ramifications of this is an innocent bystander. So house got shot up. And these are people you have to work with and help. So... <laughs> the emotional yes because you're there i remember the last time you came out you told me that you were holding somebody that just lost somebody Mm -hmm. and you were there as comfort support i don't know if you could talk much about it but you you talk about how you housed somebody recently that was going through some things yeah so i one of our um 15 year old clients um his mom wanted him you know out and she wanted him in my house and he was even put in there by the judge and, you know, just, just kind of a crazy circumstance. Um, but I'll tell you, I learned a lot from him. I took him to the doctor to get his medications refilled. And, huh. and then he also had severe, like, scars from third-degree burns on his foot. And the doctor asked him how he got that. And he said he spilt, spilt bacon grease on his foot when he was cooking. But he couldn't go to the, he had a warrant for his arrest. So he couldn't go to the regular hospital, so he went to the hood hospital. Mm. And unfortunately, they didn't have the knowledge, and they wrapped it. So he has some scarring on his foot. And then it took me over a month. Part of the thing the judge required is education. It took me over a month to figure out what school he was in and what grade he was in. I was working with family justice advocates, and thank goodness for Demario Boone got involved and kind of helped me. Um, Because then three days after that, I mean, this is like four and a half weeks in, judge kept him on his band um, an extra month which is probably good for him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But kept him on the band just because we had not met the educational requirement. For no fault of the kids. I mean, I was struggling, and I usually know how to get around things. And come to find out, he had an IEP that was not being What's followed. What's that? So it's an um, individual education plan. So the majority of our kids have a diagnosis of other, and, it's beca- and that other diagnosis is usually trauma, PTSD. So mm. it kind of affects the way they learn. Is that where we classify students as troublesome, quote-unquote? Maybe. That's where they put them in the category? You know, I, I'm not really sure. I know they all go to the same place. 
Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, they have an amazing assistant principal there. But the problem is that place is on the south end. So none of my kids in the East Bluff or other parts of town can go there. For example, he was not going in person. And he's like, he's like, Becky, I can't learn online. Yeah, that's very difficult. But part of it was they had him in a ninth grade um, level. Well, let me think. Let me, sorry, let me backtrack. So he was on a cellist, which is actually junior high. So the eighth grade work, but they had him reading at a much lower level. So I advocated, got it where he was supposed to, but he was also supposed to have his test read to him and some other things that, um, accommodations is what they call them. And then, like I said, the assistant principal was amazing and she said no one's advocated for him like this. He'd been to school three days since 2021 and on his IEP it said in the school year 23-24 he would be promoted to 10th grade, even though he was not going to school. In my house, huh. he only had to go two hours a day mm -hmm. online. He did it five hours every day, ended up with two B's and two C's. These kids have what it takes. They have a lot of potential, but no one's taking the time. And I'm not going to lie, it took a lot of time. Mm -hmm. you know? I had to take some, a little bit of time off work and whatever to get him to all of his appointments. Oh, yeah. And I it mean, is hard for, like, his mom, she works at a job where she doesn't have that flexibility or she doesn't have vacation time to take, you know. But it was just very eye-opening about all of the things that he, you know, had to go through all the systems and they just i i don't feel that they're necessarily working in favor of our kids now what would you say to community members that have the erroneous opinion of like well that's a personal problem i think that's everyone's i mean these are our future citizens future mm -hmm. leaders um i'm amazed at his skill set so what i found out is when he wasn't going to school he was actually roofing for a while landscaping he was working mm-hmm I even had a leak some, and I called someone to come fix it, and he fixed it before they got there. <laughs> like, he has this amazing skill set. He's an amazing artist. Um, but, yeah, he just has a lot of things stacked up against him. I think it just comes back to some people are living in survivor mode, and some people have never been put in that position, and they can't understand the necessity of things you have to do, and that's not condoning xyz or whatever i think that's just the sad reality of life that sometimes i don't know if you could agree with this or not yeah. but i've seen it you know south side chicago i've lost some friends from decision making mm -hmm. but the sad reality is i had xyz at home i had xyz stuff happen for me i've been down a decent path thank god knock on wood but some of my friends who got lost to the streets they never had that opportunity and, you know, you have to accept the reality, at least from my perspective, that there's just some people that have never caught a break. No, we see that all the time. There's some people whose parents can't stand them. For whatever reason it is, we can't explain it. We see it. I've seen it. I've lived through it. Like, I've seen some friends or they have nobody to go to. And then they turn to community organizations like PCAV. Yeah. That I think that's why I'm or such a big streets. supporter. You know, I mean, a lot of these kids aren't aren't eating. So one night I picked him up um, and he was at the tap because so I had gone to Florida. I couldn't take him because he was on the band. Mm -hmm. And when I got back, he's like, hey, can you pick me up here? And he goes, can my friend come over? And I had met this friend. I'm like, hmm. But I bring him over and literally they hadn't eaten. They were both rolling dice to get money to eat. So I let him stay and his friend stayed for about two nights. And I was up at 7 a.m. doing gardening and he was out there with me. Worked with me for three straight hours. Mm. Um, he wants to cook soul food. Like, you know, we talked about recipes. Great kid. 
you know, and a lot of people in the community might judge him, so obviously I got tattoos, but he has a tattoo above his eyebrow. And as I was talking to him, he said, I like doing this gardening. He said, I used to do it with my grandma, but she just passed away. That's whose name is on my eyebrow. And he really lost his stability when his grandma passed away because yeah. sometimes his dad would get drunk and then there'll be physical alter altercations and then he kicks him out, right, for a couple of days, but then he can come back. So he was at my house for two days and, and the kid that was there for a lot longer, you know, he's like, I'm walking back to the Taft. And I'm like, well, okay, walk back, right? And I looked at his friend, I'm like, aren't you going with him? He's like, I'm going to stay with you, Miss Becky. I'm trying to get out of the streets and nobody else is trying to help me get out of the streets right now but you. And it was just very eye-opening, right? And now he's back there. I mean, it just, there isn't a lot of stability. And I'm seeing a lot of um, the kid who was in my house, his grandpa passed away. His grandpa raised him from age 9 to 14. And oh, the trauma. The trauma from that has to be and losing massive. And losing their friends. I mean, one of my, another kid that we work very closely with, um, we went to Amarion, the 15-year-old who was murdered, to his um, visitation. Mm -hmm. and saw a lot of the kids we work with there but one of the kids was his um, Paul Bear so going there and seeing all these kids dressed up honestly like they're going to prom is which what they should be dressing up for at this age you know, 15, uh, 16, suits and they're there bearing a friend and it's it's just constant and then that young man who was a Paul Bear his cousin just got killed a 25 year old I mean this comes back to the, the next quote that I wanted to hit that you know death is natural but to lose someone tragically is very unnatural. It is. And I feel traumatic. like a lot of people within the community that you're serving have the traumatic experiences and no outlet to really understand what they're going through. Yeah. I mean... We refer to a couple of, um, like, OSS drives for any mm -hmm. you know, trauma-informed therapy. But just like I said, we were drinking from a fire hose. So are these kids when it comes to trauma. Because, like I said, he'd already lost a few friends. In fact, the kid I was just talking about, who was the pallbearer, he has a tattoo. I met him at JDC above his eyebrow, and I asked if that was his girlfriend, and he said, no, that was um, the girl who got killed in Iowa. Oh, snap. So he had already lost a few friends, and then now he just lost another friend, and now he just lost his cousin, and I mean... People can't, I mean, they can't even get through one traumatic event without more happening. It's like the minute you wake up, you're just waiting for trauma to hit you. You're waiting for something crazy. Not crazy. I think that's just the wrong word to use, but something massive just to rock your world that day. So you wake up like, all right, what's it going to be today? Right. And when you have that type of mentality where, like, you're just used to it, from what I've seen, you don't, it's hard to make rational decisions after that. Exactly. I mean, and this is a kid who, he was going to church with me, and um, we got him a job when he got out of JDC. He has so much potential. And, you know, a lot of common sense, too, and he has an amazing mother. Mm -hmm. so, but, I mean, it's hard. I mean, all the stuff he's going through, I mean, I don't know, you know, how I would parent, you know, a kid that's going through so much because... It's a lot. Yeah. So then I got to ask you, from all this conversation all of this, I'm... I'm a fan of yours. I love what you do. You're a good person. You've been amazing to me. PCAP's an organization that I'll proudly help as much as I can from whatever position I can. It seems like a vital organization for the community. So then my follow-up to question is this. Why is it not supported on the bigger platform? Well, 
think there's a lot of things that go into this. I mm -hmm. mean, I see my Facebook friends posting um, across the community, across different races, about blaming the kids, not understanding all the trauma that goes behind what they're doing. It's not a bunch of kids. I mean, I'm sure there's some kids out there just doing crazy stuff, but for the most part, they have more trauma than we can even imagine. Mm -hmm. Or blaming the parents. I have parents that went back, got their GED, became managers. One just, she's been employed the month twice in the last six months, but now she's in management. So she works 12-hour shifts. The other day, she had to work um, two back-to-back -back eights. So our kids had to stay home. I mean, they're old enough to stay home alone, but then that's when you get in trouble, right? So it's... Unsupervised. Yeah, blaming parents, blaming kids. Um, I really think that has a lot to do with it. Just, I I don't know what it is, to be honest. Because I love these families, and everybody's like, oh, you're... you're. Let's put, they think I'm crazy. Let's call, <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. There's a lot more to this conversation that we can have, but should we at this point, I think, is the, the bigger question. Because there, there's there's T's we got to cross and I's we got to dot. Well, maybe not at this point, but I mean, some of the things I've heard in meetings where when they were talking about cure violence coming, I don't know if I talked about this last time, hmm. we had community members stand up and say they didn't want to pay $25,000 for um, the cure violence assessment. And then they were talking about how much money it was going to cost and everything. But they're like, how many lives is this going to save? Maybe five? I'm mm -hmm. like, how are you monetizing lives? I mean, what is more important than children dying in our community? That's my take on it. And the fact that we're mm -hmm. having all these other conversations, they just seem... Mundane or... Yes. <laughs> like... I feel like I'm in the twilight zone sometimes. I'm like, this is a problem. And I spoke about it yesterday. I mean, we were out till 1.32 a.m. with the police on the homicide for the 14-year-old. And back up at 9 a.m. for a visitation of a 15-year-old. And people just keep telling me, oh, you're just too close to it. But I'm like, we have children dying in our community. You Why? should be closer to it. Yes. How is everybody not talking about this? I, I'm sorry, but that <laughs> that kind of pisses me off when someone's like, you're too close to it. Back up. No. That's where you're supposed to be. It takes a village, right? It, it does. And, you know, when I do presentations, I'll tell you, I can't say enough about shared blessings or Rotary of Peoria North. I mean, they just really support everything we do. But even at the end of Rotary, they're like, Becky, we're worried. A couple of people came up to me and they're like, I don't know if you should be doing this work. It seems dangerous. And, and I get that from a lot of my friends. They're more And I said, you know, I appreciate that. I love them all. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, people should be worried about the kids. You know, I have a lot of faith, and I'm like, God doesn't love me any more than he loves all these kids that are dying or all of our community members getting shot. Mm -hmm. But I feel like people categorize people differently. Like, people are more worried about, you know, a lot of people came to me like, what are you going to do for work? My staff and I can get jobs anywhere. And I'll tell you, before I made the recommendation to the board to dissolve, I cried that whole day because what's going to happen to our families? Mm -hmm. Now, the anti-violence funding through the city, those are all great organizations. But no one is working with our families. No one's working with the people who are getting shot, the people being affected by getting shot. Um, but like I said, we have to go at this from a multi-layered systemic approach. You know, with the school, I know there's a lot of controversy because they're already getting, you know, tax dollars, right? But I was on a school board, and I do know they build prisons based on third grade reading levels. So that's important, too. That's a really important preventative step. Oh, can you explain more on that? Yeah. So in prisons, a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, 
people often have low reading levels, mm-hmm. like second to fourth grade. Um, so there's just a correlation. When kids start not doing well in school, a lot of times they're going to drop out. A lot of times they, you know, my kids will tell me that, you know, they feel stupid or other kids will call them stupid, and they are not at all. But the problem is the reading level is so much lower because, again, they have that PTSD. They can't focus on school. I mean, they got to think about how am I going to get from here to home without getting shot. I mean, there's a lot of trauma with these kids. It's hmm. affecting. But they do build, especially, um, yeah, depends on the, the states, but it really is designed like that. Hmm. The other thing where I think Peoria falls short, and I know I'm getting off a tangent from what I was talking about. No, by all means. I mean, but multi, this is good to know. Multifaceted, right? Um, so lead poisoning. Now, most of the country eradicated lead-based paint and all of these issues. Should have been like 20-plus years. Yes. We still have a huge lead epidemic in, in our community. Really? Where homes still have them. In fact, one of the... Um, one of the kids that I work with, his brother is currently in county jail awaiting um, sentencing because he murdered another kid in October of 2021 and mm-hmm. he shot four other my kids. But talking to his mom, he had the worst case. He was on the front page of the Journal Star, worst case of lead poisoning since 1979. So OSF provided all these parents classes on when you have lead poisoning, sometimes that and I don't want to misspeak, but essentially some antisocial behaviors, hard behavioral management, they don't have like maybe a filter or that impulse control. So in the 70s, 80s, the pipeline to prison was more so lead poisoning. And I'm like, well, here we are. And the reason this is important is because, you know, and I'm not saying that's the only reason that he killed and shot other kids, but... A contributing factor. And that's preventive, you know, that is easy to prevent. You know, we hmm. really need to with these older houses. That's interesting. I mean, there's, there's just so many factors. So many different there. variables. Because I, I know people from different sides of the aisle, left, right, whatever you want to put it. Normally, people on the left are a little bit more understanding, understanding that there are many variables to what happens to events. Some people that are a little bit more on the right, unfortunately, have been more strict down the line. Like, you do this, this is your punishment, go. And there's no type of trying to understand the psychology behind actions. And it's a very interesting dialogue to have with somebody. Because I could easily bring somebody here tomorrow and have the conversation. They'll have a completely different take on this. Oh, absolutely. How do you respond to that? Like, somebody that would be like, hmm, really? That's That's the hill you're going on, Becky? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Well, and I think it's just, you know, different experiences, different perspectives. Mm-hmm. My master's in applied forensic psychology. Oh, oh yeah. We were we yeah. did talk about this last time. So, I mean, that's probably partially why I look at things from this angle. Um, but I'm also someone who wants to get to the root of the problem, not just the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why we focus on a lot of our case management services are around the social determinants of gun violence, which is poverty, disinvestment, um, trauma. Guns are real. It's a really big issue right now. Like the last three years, not just within the crimes, but it's it's a hot topic within even politics and daily conversation. News media is magnifying guns, this guns, that. Why? Why are we here now? Like I, growing up, I remember it being a thing. But the last 10 years, I feel like it's really been magnified. Yeah. 
like hardcore. Well, when I grew up, which I'm older than you, Ross, but I went to a school. You don't look a day over 25. What you talking uh, about, back eight? That's why I come back to see you. I know. Welcome back anytime. You know where I am. Well, back in the 90s, when I was in high school in a small town from here, it was nothing for people to have um, guns in the back of their trucks. Like, open guns. We had them in the parking lot. No one thought a thing about it. Yay. Here we are 20 years, well, 30 years later. Mm. We don't have to put a year on it. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, but it is. It, it's definitely a hot topic, and I'm not even going to pretend that I have all of the answers. I mean, I was in the military. I grew up hunting, so I'm not going to say anti-gun. And like I just said, it was something that I grew up with. It was very normal. But I do think we need things in place because... Yeah, like I, I'm not the political cat that wants to draw the political party yeah. verbiage and conversation, but it is a conversation to have between community members. Of it's magnified now, and like you, I would love to get to the root of the problem. Like I don't know who we got to talk to, but there's a central focus somewhere. Something's going on, which is hiding all of this for everybody. I mean, these are our kids. Yeah. These are kids that should be allowed to go to the pool play baseball or whatever, hang out with their friends, be kids. We, and the craziest thing, so the kid who was staying with me for a while, when we were would be in Peoria, he would put on the shysty, right? The mask. The yeah. Mask. And I'm like, one day, I was like, you look so suspicious. And he's like, yeah. if I go in there and my ops see me before I see them, I'm not going to make it out of that store, Becky. He goes, don't your kids wear masks? No. And it was very eye-opening for both him and my kids. I mean, my, my kids love him. And, you know, he called me last night. He's like, tell everybody I love him. Like, sweetest kid ever. But I remember a conversation where my daughter was talking to him, and she's about two years older. And she said, do you have any stories that don't involve trauma or shooting? And he thought about that. And he's like, no. So she so they just sat there and made a list of all these things he should be experiencing as when I was 16, but as a 15-year-old boy. And how many of them did he had he had experienced by that point? Nothing really. I mean, my son took him hiking, and um, and then he took both the kids fishing that couple of days when I had two boys in my house, and and they came back and they were so excited. They showed me crawfish and the, you know the fish they caught and just all these different things. But it was so nice to see them because I went hiking and to see them with their head down and everything else. Because I'll tell you, when they're sitting in my car, everyone's heads on a swivel. I'm like, you're making me nervous. <laughs> yeah. And I don't get nervous, but, and honestly, I'm not. But it is something that I notice. And I'll have kids when I go to, through certain parts of the area, they either put their shysty on or they hit the car seat and they fly straight back. So yeah. you can't even see them in my car, they're laying down. But there's some people that have never needed to experience that. No. And it's just, it's just so disheartening that our kids have to do that. I mean, I've had kids who are living inside of town they aren't comfortable in. So we're like, can you call my mom, make sure the door's unlocked, and they run in there. And it's just, I can't even imagine. Yeah, there's, remember, there's, like, I, I, will, I will berate this fact down to people getting annoyed by me by saying this, but there are people that will never fully understand that ambiance of life, being in that moment of, if I turn this corner right here and I go a block too far, that's it. Right. And some people are like, I could walk where I want. Yep. They don't get it. Yes, we have crime. And I mean, even for me, there's moments where I'll see someone in Shasty. I'm like, all right, yo, it's nine degrees. Why you got Shasty on? 
and my South Side Chicago pops up. I'm like, mm, what you doing there, dog? And I'll have my head on a swivel. But it's just natural because of the life I've kind of grown into and I've seen, I've done things. But then you have certain community members like, hmm, quick to call, but they don't understand. And it's, it, it, it's an interesting dynamic. It, it really is. But I mean, it's, if we don't work on it now, and I don't, again, I don't know how people aren't all, all hands on deck working on this issue. Because we shouldn't have this many community members dying, especially children. Well, I feel like besides hands-on, you shouldn't also have a lot of people fighting you to be hands-on. Yeah, I mean, there's... I know, that we can't talk well, too much about it, I know. I'll just say that it's more political um, than it should be. To me, you know, children dying shouldn't be a political debate. We should all... Can you talk more about that, or is that something that we can't talk about yet? I don't... Yeah, let's not talk about that specifically yet. Okay. Um... But I do feel like I, I got like you. It's become a political issue. Something I would be interested in seeing because I think you know I was a veteran, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, and not me personally, but veterans who you know gone overseas and experienced things, their brains, their MRIs, look different because of the trauma they've experienced. And I would be really interested to see what that looks like with a lot of our kids. And oh yes. I have shared with. Um, you know, just the secondary trauma we're getting, and I used to teach on vicarious trauma for first responders to keep from getting it. Hmm. I had to do a four-hour neuropsych test at the VA. I thought I had early onset dementia. Turns out it was trauma. Just the constant um, barrage of trauma. You know, feel like you're drowning in other people's emotions. But yeah. that's me who goes home every night without my head on a swivel, relaxing on my porch. Um, that could turn off the alarm. Right. Our kids are in constant fight or flight, and then there's never a break for them. And if it's affecting me like this after just two years, mm-hmm. what do you think about the kids who grew up in it and they never experienced anything else? Let me ask you this, because I'm still kind of, I'm a year and a couple months here in this community. I'm still kind of learning it. Um, what would you say is the safest school that we have here, like high school, safest? <coughs> I don't know. Like... Because, you know, in Chicago, there's like St. Ignatius, the preppy school, shirt tie on. You are safe in that place. Like, nothing. Notre Dame. All right. So, and what's, would you say, most community members would say is the most unsafe school that we have here? Or the ones that have the most amount of cases? Uh, You know, I honestly don't know. I would say, um, we have a lot of kids in Central and Manual, but we have kids at Richwoods, too. So I would love to take two or a handful of kids from each of those schools and have that study done. And I would love to see where that is, if there's patterns, if there's things going on. Because I think that would be amazing. Not amazing, but that would be very telling of yeah. the different social economical environments they're growing up in the danger that both kids are going in, and also the environments. Because we all live in a community, but it's not all the same. Oh, absolutely. It's just like, and I t- say it's a tale of two cities in Peoria, maybe even more than two. Well, yeah, last time you we were here, I remember you telling me the story of there was this kid who was doing, they were doing their homework in the bathtub as gunshots were going off. That's that's been a norm for kids for years in some, uh, some parts of the community. I knew more when I was a neighbor house on the south end. <sighs> but even yesterday, so after we get done with the press conference, and I didn't realize this until one of my board members came to see me today. Mm. Um and he said, did you hear those kids? Because we had we have flyers when we go out with police and Crime Stoppers that have a picture. 
and we had those laid out for the press conference and these kids rolled by on bikes and they came up to see what it was all about as we were disbanding and they said oh I know him oh that's my brother they knew the majority of kids people on that table and those are people who had been killed across the entire city of Peoria not just in the North Valley where my office is and these are kids on bike who live there so I mean the the trauma is far-reaching now let me ask you in that moment when you see the kids reacting or you know you see how they are when they notice individuals do you see of a faces of shock or more like oh they got them just like a normalization it, it's, it's really just like an everyday occurrence like oh yes. and, and some of my kids are like Becky I don't know what's wrong with me I just feel numb but again you know some of those you know, so 13, 14, 15 feeling numb to death is that's because it's just so prevalent yeah. in some of their lives and I went and spoke and I might have told you about this but when I went to Woodruff to speak a class not this year but the year before everyone in that class had been with me on scene and they were from all three high schools they were in the class for like um, law enforcement I think it was hmm. but it was very eye opening because yeah, I don't always remember everybody's face from on scene because sometimes there's a hundred people, um, but everyone had been with me. I, I I know I asked you this last time, but how do you keep going? Because when you said the five hundred and seventy something families that you served last year, um, yeah, so we had five hundred twenty six in the last twelve months. Because I love the families. I mean, they are absolutely amazing, and you know we we get a lot of thank you letters or letters of support, and they all say they just don't have a big level of support. Even when they have family and friends, they're mm -hmm. not going through the same thing, right? Um, but that's my big thing. Like I said earlier, my staff and I can get jobs anywhere. My concern is what's going to happen to these families um, if we're not around? Because no one's serving them. And going back, like, I know the YMCA and Friendship House got money. I love both of those organizations. When I was at Neighborhood House, we were under the YMCA's Teenage Program. Marcellus, right? Marcellus is Friendship House. Friendship House. And then okay. Andy Thornton is YMCA, and they are both great leaders, great organizations. So I really can't say anything about the organizations that got the funding, um, because those are needed too. We need after-school programs. We need a place for kids to go. The problem is with our kids and you know some of their criminal past, they can't go a lot of places. You know, people are worried about the violence our kids bring. Yeah. Um, which which is, is merited. It, it's understandable. But then what happens to them? Because... You they know, get ostracized, unfortunately. Yeah. And then what are they going to do? So, when you good. when you put somebody cornered in when you put someone in a corner where they got no way out, mm -hmm. they have to fight to survive. What are they going to do? Right? Fight. And I said yesterday, it's very much killer to be killed for a lot of these kids. Yeah, it's a sad reality of what the community is is going through, or a portion of our community. Yeah. As and people just and you can't understand it until you're close. I mean, when I was at Neighborhood House, I I just couldn't get it when kids would quit school and do all these things. We're like, well, Becky, I don't expect her to live past the age of 20. Yeah. Now, homicide is the leading cause of death for 15 to 34-year-old African-American males in the city. That is... So, I get it now. Such a I high number. Yeah, I mean, for how many years then? 10 plus years that you've been... Well, I was at Neighbor House for eight years, and I've been here for a little over two. So... The amount of time you've been doing work in the community, things you've seen. I mean, the carry note is you have a big heart. 
I mean, anybody that I've come across that knows you knows that you pour everything into what you do. I mean, Kendall, God, well, love good. Kendall. I think everything's so crazy. Okay. <laughs> that, that's a better way to say it. Well, you know, hey, got to have a little crazy to you to go against <laughs> the system, I guess. You know? It, but I'm like, how can, and that's what I always ask people, I'm like, if you saw a kid rolling dice to make enough money to eat, how could you not take them home? Yeah. Everybody's like, take someone home, you don't even know, but I'm like, at the end of the day, they're really just kids. Like, when I have the conversations with them, I mean... I mean, they're street smart. They're very much. They're more street smart than me. Like now, I know every back alley to drive through because they won't let me stop. But you know, both perspectives have some merit to them. Let's just put it that way. Not saying that what you're doing is insane for trusting a stranger, but they are a child, and they're a child through trauma, and you understand that from your perspective, things you've been through. But some people that have never lived that lifestyle understand that lifestyle. They see a shysty and they immediately sirens go off in their mind. And somehow we need to get to that side of our community to understand, like, look, we understand your worry. We understand your hesitation. But these are kids. Kids that have never been shown love. And it's never going to get any better. And, I mean, I work with, you know, a lot of their moms, too. And, like I said, you know, some of my kids have the best, hardest working moms. Um. But kind of going back to, you know, I can't even say it was an easy thing because the kid lived for me for about two and a half months. And we're still very much in contact. But it was hard for him because he's like, he called me OG. He's <laughs> like, you got a lot of rules, OG. Yeah. And my kids are like, yes, she does. But they're like, you're not special. <laughs> they're like, we have this too, right? <laughs> but some of the things that, you know, smoking, that was the one thing. And my kids are like, you're letting a 15-year-old smoke on the patio? He was, he's been smoking since he was nine. His parents allowed it. That was my oh, one compromise. Oh. Because the other compromises are he was allowed to have um, girls spend the night at 15. My kids, I didn't even let them date till they were 16. So I'm like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, just eh, no street stuff. Yeah. Right? So. Well, your house is supposed to be sanctuary. Yeah. If you bring any street stuff into that sanctuary, then it doesn't become a safe ground. And, you know, you have to have rules in order. I understand that. So, but, I mean, you know, it wasn't always easy. And, I mean, we're, he is like one of my kids, and he'd argue with me, and I'd argue with him about, <laughs> you know, the rules. But, but he was also very respectful, you know, very just. Is that more like, you know, just trying to have some say-so to be heard? So they push against boundaries, I guess. Yeah. So you Would know, that be the psychology behind it? I, I think so. Or, like, you know, he'd come in with a lit um, little cigar thing. Mm. And I'm like, you know, you can't smoke in my car or in my house. You know, and I think a lot of it was pushing boundaries. And for a while, he was kind of, um, I don't know how to say it, pushing in kind of, an, not an aggressive way. But finally, I said, are you trying to push me away? And yeah. he said, yeah. He said, because everybody always leaves me. He goes, I'm just waiting for you to leave me. So to speed it up, he crosses your boundaries to make you get to that closer before he gets comfortable and lets his guard down. It's just insane. So huh. I'm, I'm still talking to him every day, um, you know, even like my rules, and, which is fine. It's, right. That's a normal teenage thing. My, I'll tell you, my kids didn't always like the rules. Well, I didn't like my mom's rules, but it got me where I got. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if I, you know, my mom was a hard ass. She's an amazing grandma now, less rules, but when she had me, <laughs> she was a hard ass, but it got me to where I remember one day I tried to sag. My pop slapped me upside the head. I come back home later, not sagging. My mom slapped me upside the head, too. 
Oh, I I do the same thing. I'd be like, put your pants up. Nobody wants to see that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's. He's like, this style. I, I'm like, I don't care. This is the wrong style. Gee, I'll tell you right now, it's definitely the wrong style. My pop definitely knew it was the wrong style. My pop was of the area. And he's like, you're not going to involve with that. And I just remember I had the blessing of having street smart parents who understood the streets, who never let me get an ounce close to it. Yeah. And thank God for that. Because if not, it could have easily gone. I had some friends that were associated Never, you never see me with them because yep. my mom would never allow that. But I knew them. I remember one time I shook up with them, not you know shake yeah. up, but like, hey, what's up, man? I remember someone told my mom they saw that, and my mom, woo, <laughs> Becky, when I tell you, I think I saw Jesus in that moment. <laughs> but all this, yeah, shout out to Sandra Martinez. Ah, there we go, name out there. Um, as always, it's always an amazing conversation with you because I feel like we deep dive into at least some psychology behind what's going on, yeah. at least for people to understand, like, it's not a black or white issue. There's a lot of gray layers as to why people act a certain way. Our actions come from mental turmoil, trauma, tragedy, Survival. PT. Yes. And, and he told me, you know, I had to say, I didn't choose the streets, Becky. They chose me. And sometimes it has to do with their relatives. Sometimes it has to do with the area they live in. And, they're, you know, a lot of parents can't help. I mean, just because you're in an area, I mean, I, I think I talked about this. I grew up in a poor area, but it was a rural area, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't have to worry about the gun violence. But it's different. There, if you grow up in a poor area, gun violence is just part of it. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> so we, we have a lot of work to do. So if we could get, I mean, we're really looking for community support. I know there's a lot of, when I was at Neighborhood House, um, during COVID, we actually broke fundraising records just Mm -hmm. by telling the story of all the things we were doing, and the community just came together and poured in. I mean, we're feeding seniors, we're feeding kids, doing all of these basic needs, right? So I'm hopeful the community will come in and help because now is not the time for PCAP to go away. I agree. I mean, 526 families, that's a big number. That's a lot in a year. And the numbers only rise. You said the violence, the violence number, gun violence number, homicide number was where now? So our, wow, well, because I think we've had a couple people shot this week, but um, yeah. was it 76? 76. And it's July. July 19th is when we're recording this. That's, I'm not a, a mathematician, but per week, that's a significant number yeah, since I mean, the first and now. We had 20. Let's say the 18th. 19th. 19th, yeah. But we, yesterday we had 20 people shot by July, July 1st in a month. More days than there are in the month. I mean, this is. And that one day, I think it was like a week after July 4th, where there were nine shots by the bison. Yeah. Like, I feel like every day something big is happening in this town. And you know, and sometimes we get the, well, you're not, you're out here, PCAV, but you're not deterring the violence. There's only three of us. There's only so much you can do as an organization. There, there really is. I mean, it takes it, it. I mean, it takes a village. It really does. And if you have a lot of people that aren't helping the village raise itself, it becomes that much even harder to do it. There's only so many people that can have so much resources and time to do things. Yes, and, and everything ties in. You know, like you said, it takes a village and. Um, I, I know a lot of amazing, hardworking teachers. I know you've had Hetty on here. Love Hetty. I do, too. 
I um, heard she getting frustrated with things also. <laughs> Not to put it up, I may call her back to yeah, oh, let her vent. You know, <laughs> I know she got a lot to get off her chest. I love Hetty. <laughs> I do too. And I mean, I, I, like I said, I was on the school board. I value teachers and stuff, but... Um, when I was at United Way, or not United Way, when I was at United Way agency, and anyone can get this information, but every three years they do a community needs assessment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they look at is education. And like our reading levels are way below statewide and nationwide, and that also feeds in to the violence. So that's why I was saying like when people are um, upset about the school getting money, there there is importance and that is an empirically based thing to do to prevent violence. Now, unfortunately, that's going to prevent it down the road, um, which is needed because that's how we're going to do the future generation. But yeah. what are we going to do with people right now who are getting shot in our community and making sure they have the services they need? They need. I don't think the answer is to, let's put it this way. You want to get ahead of the curve for the next generation, but you're really just going to isolate an entire generation that needs support and help. You know what I mean? Like, well, well, I'm kind of with you and even, you know, the kids that we're trying to get at that reading level. Mm -hmm. parents and their siblings or their uncles are getting killed you know that amount of trauma is also going to pour into it like I said it's a multifaceted issue so before we wrap up let me ask you this what do you want people to know today like what, what what's the big takeaway from the breaking news yesterday you sitting here if there's anything someone's going to get from this what do you want them to know mainly we just need well PCAB needs community support so we can continue helping if they want to be part of the solution, they can always reach out to me. Even if um, we have a lot of volunteers, and even if they're not comfortable working directly with our clients, some will go grocery shopping for us. So we have kind of a little system where, um, and our grant doesn't pay for groceries, but the Peoria School Foundation does. Oh. So the reimburses. So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, we get a list, someone goes grocery shopping, we pay for it, then we submit for reimbursement, If it, as long as there's a kid within the school, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of ways to be part of the solution and help, because sometimes it's just that one-off, you know, um, people who aren't working because they couldn't get out of bed because they lost a direct family member, you know, a child, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, um, and we kind of, you know, bridge that gap. The band-aid in the situation, yeah. Get back to normalcy. But, mm. Well, not even normalcy, get back. Well, you you give them that helping hand as a community should. Mm -hmm. You know, back in old times, you know, person over here goes down, all right, the flock comes in, helps them out how they can. They help sustain the community until that person get back on their knees yep. or off their knees, back on their feet, you know. It's just... Well, one of my board members, and he talks about this a lot, he was shot in 1989, Frank Stacy, and he's like, I wish we would have, we would have had an organization like PCAP around at that time. Now he's like a, a vice, I'm probably going to say this wrong, vice president of like the Midwestern um, part for the Alphas. Alpha Phi Alpha? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know them well. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's great. But I mean, that is, you know, we even get clients in now. They're like, I wish you were here. Years you know, ago. You know, a few years ago when I lost someone or when I was shot. I think the big takeaway that, uh, like I was saying earlier, is I'm, I'll support you. I I love what you do for the community. I mean, you've been amazing to me, and I just, anytime I get your message out there, I'll do my best for you. Mm -hmm. I feel like what you're doing is definitely a necessity for the community, yeah. and a lot of people should understand that. I um, wish my goal would be to work ourselves out of this where our community wouldn't even need a PCAB, but we're a long way from that. 
that you're obsolete for the right reasons. Yes, for the right reasons. <laughs> Not pushed out for whatever agenda's going on, but because crime is now to a point where community got itself. Well, yes. And, I mean, the, I would say the big takeaway is our programs do save and change lives. I mean, we put people in hotels to work out a safety plan. We move people out of a community where their ops, as you call them, mm-hmm. will not stop until they kill them. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we save those lives, and sometimes the people we save, you know, there is that retaliatory factor, so it kind of keeps them from shooting people as well. We, we can't quantify the amount of lives we save, but we know that we are saving and then um, helping people get jobs, you know. A lot of people tell me they don't want to sell drugs, um, but they don't have a whole lot of skills, or maybe they don't have any, they didn't have their GED or their high school diploma. I think the sad reality people need to understand is not everybody is born with the same opportunities or the same footing, even on the same plane. 100%. We're all born with the opportunity to live, but it's not the same. Well, thank you so much sorry. for having me on. I know I feel like a negative Nancy, but I, no. think, I think the community needs to know this is going. You know, I don't think it's negative, Nancy. Pura is not that big, and for know, the crime like, number that we have for the small community we live in, everyone's like ten minutes away from what's going on. Here's the thing with people that say X, Y, Z about even if anybody says you're a negative, Nancy, it's not. You're not being negative. You're saying, it's "Hey, facts. wake the fuck up." Yes. I know someone's gonna get mad that I cuss, but whatever. It is what it is. I get more mad at the crime than anything. Look. Wake up. This is the reality we live in. Wherever community you think we were, it's evolved. Yeah, it's it, changed. And it's it's going everywhere. I mean, as we've seen with, you know, the car thefts, but I have friends that live on Moss Avenue. And, you know, I love all of those big houses, but they talk about at night, like clockwork, you know, if you live close to Western, you can hear gunfire. So, I mean, it's, it's creeping up in the areas that were... Black, visible. brown, white, it yep. don't matter. It doesn't... It's a community problem. It is. And I think a lot of people need to realize that, open the damn eyes and realize that as a community, we got to come together. So, not a negative Nancy. Well, you know. When I know you're Becky, but it's a realistic Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Realistic Rebecca. Well, I mean, even my Army buddies, one of them had to come and have, um, I don't know, some type of knee surgery. And his wife was going to come, and he's like, what's the safe part to stay in Peoria? He's like, hmm. and he's from an area that has enough crime of its own, but just the perception outside of Peoria is Peoria's dangerous. Well, I've seen it on TikTok where Peoria is like number six out of the unsafest cities in Illinois to live in, it, or yes. like something like that because of the crime. Yeah. I didn't know that before moving here. I moved downtown. I'm like, oh, I'm safe. And I walk out. I'm like, yeah, man, that's it. You know? Well, most people, that's what you would look at, right? Like. What I would look at if I was moving to a different city is the crime rate and how are the schools. Exactly. So, I mean, I, to me, I think those two things need to be... Those two have a huge amount of correlation. They do. More than people realize. Absolutely. I feel like we're going to come back in a couple months and have the completely unsolicited <laughs> conversation, and that's when we both get canned. <laughs> if you're down, I'm down. <laughs> I wait until not a pecan. <laughs> but absolutely. I, uh, I, uh, to me, you can't fix a problem unless you acknowledge the problem. And I think a lot of people have their heads in the sand if it's not directly affecting them. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I know that too well. <laughs> I have these kind. Con- See, the thing is, I think for what I do here, I, I'm privy to a lot of off mic conversations. I hear things, oh, sure. and I'm just like, okay, a lot of these people have the same carry tune. Where's the disconnect? Yep. And I'm like. Hmm. I know where it is. <laughs> I can't say it right now because, you know, I'm not trying to get exercised myself. But I'm starting to create a picture of myself being an outsider coming into this community, hearing our community activists, our community members, things they've been going through. You, Hetty, Kendall to an extent. This man will let me know everything going on. And I love him for it. But Marcellus, everyone I've had the chance to talk to, Angel Cruz. I mean, even to an extent, I talked to the chief not too long ago. Off my conversation, you tell me some things. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm starting to paint this picture. I'm starting to see things. Connecting the dots. And I'm like, all right, what can I do from my position? And, and I think you do a great job of telling oh. people stories and letting people know about the different parts of the community and what's needed. There's a lot of need. And if we could broadcast the message as much as possible. By any means, anytime you need a mic, let me know. You know I got you, Becky. Um, with that said, it's been another episode of the KZ Community Beat. I'm your host, Ross Martinez. In the hot seat this week, thank you so much to Becky Ross. I'm the CEO of PCAP, Peoria Community Against Violence. Go back, check out the other episodes. If you'd like to hear a little bit more extensive detail about what PCAP does, episode two is the one Becky's on, and we would appreciate it greatly. Uh, if they want to get involved, Becky, where they go? They could go to our website, org, or our Facebook page. All right. With that said, go back or I will leave you off my Christmas list. Bye.